All right, so again, welcome everybody tonight and those listening on our podcast. I want to give you a quick recap. Last week, we saw how the people of Israel were moving forward, going towards Mount Sinai, and all along the way, they're being led by the pillar of a cloud and fire at night, which was God's presence. And in the bigger picture, what God was doing was directing their steps and growing in their faith. Right? So tonight, we're going to continue our story of uh, Moses and the Israelites. It's going to be in Exodus 18. If you have your Bibles, you open them up. You got your iPad, iPhone, that's okay. Um, now, the part that we're going to talk about mainly from Exodus 18 is going to be specifically Moses' family and his father-in-law, who are his family, his father-in-law, and they're going to rejoin him after the plagues, after the Red Sea incident. And then we also, we're going to get to see how Moses handles everyday trials of being the leader within Israel. All right, so let's look at verse 1 and let's see what it tells us. It says, now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Moses' father-in-law was a man, as it tells us, his name was Jethro, and he's listed as a, pre- uh, excuse me, a priest of Midian. The name Midian is actually significant because it's one of the children of Abraham. We know that Abraham did take another wife later in life, and her name was Keturah. You can find that in Genesis 25 if you want to look that up. And they had children. One of those children was named Midian. So because of Jethro's connection with Abraham, it's quite likely, we believe he was probably a believer in God and may have been an actual priest of God, which is really, really cool. Now, you've got to remember, when we read the Bible and we hear about stories, we hear about the main characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and sometimes we can assume that they're the only ones that believed in God at that time, right? We tend to think that because those are the only people listed, but the truth is there were other people around Moses, Abraham, all those other characters that would have heard about God, the great things that he did, and they came to believe, and they raised their children to know God too. So likely there were whole other groups outside of the Israelites to a degree that would have known and believed in God. They just didn't get written about. So again, Jethro appeared to have been a believer and was a priest. And it tells us from a distance, he heard about all the miracles God did for Moses and the Israelites. And more than likely, not just him, but the other communities in the area, they would have also believed in God, and there were some that didn't. They would have heard about all these miracles. They would have heard about all the good news, and uh, even about the plagues. Let's be honest, they would have made for great stories, would they not? Think about all the stuff that's happening in the news now, you know, your phone, your TV, but that would have been great news. All right? And for people that believed in God, it would have been great, a great source of hope and confidence, would help their faith. For communities that did not believe in God, it would have been a source of fear and respect and like, ooh, we need to steer clear, right? So again, think about how stories get passed around today around the world with internet and cell phones. Um, even stories that are not that big, but back then, think about the chatter, the gossip, the plagues would have brought about. How far and wide that would have went. How many times would it have been told and retold over campfires and just going out and out and out? What about the whole Egyptian army being drowned in the Red Sea? You don't think that got passed around, right? Or how about the news about the angel of death? That would have gone far and wide too. So it makes sense, all the sense in the world that Jethro and Moses' family that were in a distance away would have heard about all these events too, right? But the most important, the message that got out, this is what matters, and then Jethro certainly got the message is that these events happened because God intervened for Israel. That's what also got out. The message of God's power, his favor for Israel became well known and it was very good news to the people who believed. So let's continue with our story. Uh, verses two to four. 
After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he, saved, for, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, at some point, Moses did send his family to live with his father-in-law. Probably, it doesn't tell us, but we think probably during the plagues where it would have made sense because it was so, you know, so much going on. And now that Moses and the Israelites were free from slavery, they're in the desert, they're on the move, God's leading them. It was safe for his family to rejoin them. But I also want to pause for a moment. Let's examine the name that Moses gave his sons because they're interesting. His oldest son was named Gershom, which meant stranger or stranger in a strange land. And that is a really odd name to name a boy. Let's be honest, right? It, it meant something, but that's what Moses called him. Now, the name is actually a reflection of how Moses felt. That's how he felt, right? Before God called him to free the Israelites. Before Moses was called, he had no purpose. He had no people. He was a loner. He was on his own in the wilderness, right? And in a way, think about it, we can relate with that as well. How did we feel before we were saved, right? And, but if you can imagine how, how big that weighed on him that he actually named one of his own children, after that, right? And that's pretty huge. Now this, and, um, but after God came and he called Moses, after Moses freed, uh, freed the people, he had purpose, right? And he knew God would be with him and would lead him. He named his second son Eleazar, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of the Pharaoh. Man, Moses' life was changed. He had purpose. So he named his next child after that feeling. Right? Think about that. God is my helper. He saved me from the sword of the Pharaoh. That's a lot stronger name than Ryan, right? That's pretty huge. That's pretty cool. But remember, Moses did this to honor God and to be a constant reminder all of his life what he went through and how God was there. He, he never wanted to forget that. He never wanted to uh, let that be anything but incredibly special. Anybody ever name their kids after something like that? No, right? That's really unique, and that's really cool what he did. Now, the story goes, as Jethro and Moses' wife and his children, as they approach the camp, so they've been off for a while, now they come back to the camp, Moses actually goes out to meet them. And as I read what unfolds, look at how Moses treats his father-in-law. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, this is verse 7 and 8, and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all about the hardships that they met along the way and how the Lord saved them. Now, this is cool. Moses, even though he was the leader of an entire nation, even though he took on the Pharaoh of Egypt and won, even though he was used by God in a powerful way and his name was going to be told again and again for thousands of years, what does he do to his father-in-law? He bows down and he kisses him. Right, his, he, he was showing respect to his father-in-law who did a good deed for him by caring for his family. So Moses shows his thankfulness, his admiration, and he bows low before him. Even though, let's be honest, he's a bold, he's a powerful leader, he's still very humble. He didn't let his success go to his head. He does not become proud. And let's be honest, that wouldn't necessarily be easy to do, right? But that's what he did. 
Now, the other reason Moses probably bowed before Jethro is because he was also listed as a priest. Moses gave him the respect his position deserved. Because even though Moses had led a successful campaign or everything was going well, the office of priest during that time period was still to be respected. And that's an important message. Next, the verse tells us that Moses was honest about their experience. Notice he told Jethro about the hard times, because let's be honest, they had them, right? The Israelites did. He also told them how God saved them. And right there, this is one of the biggest points I want everyone to take home tonight. Following God diligently and faithfully does not mean we will never experience hardship. It just doesn't. Hardship is part of life. Many times God's going to use the hard times to build us up and to make our faith stronger. He does. Here's an example of this that we forget a lot. With the gospel. When we share the gospel, the best part is sharing the good news about salvation. Amen? 100%. That's the easy part. That's where God does the work and we are saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. But what's our part? What do we need to do? We need to admit we're a sinner. We need to repent. We need to turn from our ways, right? The other part that goes along with that is we're also required to forgive the way God forgives us. And that's not always easy to do. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, 14 to 15. It'll be up here behind me. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, what's it say? Your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that's one of those verses when people read it, they go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, this is one we got to stop for a second on. It's very easy to read that and pass by when you're not being challenged to the core, when you haven't been truly, truly wronged as an adult, right? That's when it's truly hard. When someone really and honestly truly hurts you, I mean, they steal from you, whatever, all kinds of stuff, that's tough. And i got to be honest. I want you to everyone look at me for a second. The hardest thing I've had to do as a pastor the most difficult thing, the thing I've had the least amount of success with a lot of times is convincing one a grown adult who has truly been wronged by another person or they think they have to forgive this other person. That takes the longest if it ever happens. That is difficult. That's a tall order. And I have met people that have actually said, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. That will not happen. And then that same person said, well, what does the Bible say about that? Do I have to? What do you think I said? Absolutely. So are you telling me if I don't forgive them, I'm not going to heaven? What the Bible says, what Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And what it also says is forgiven people go to heaven. You know, we have to repent, we have to... And that's a tough conversation, but it's real. And the truth is, we can't sugarcoat stuff like that. We can't sand down the edges and make it palatable for everybody. It doesn't work that way. Because if you do that, when it really happens, the chance of success goes down so far. Right? And Jesus talked about this issue on more than one occasion because it was difficult. It's hard. He had to teach the disciples over time. Right? Let's show another example. Matthew 18, 21 to 22. I love this one. Then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now let's look at what Peter's asking. 
How many times do I need to forgive the person who sinned against me? And he's asking this from a question, from a, I'm sorry, from a position of a human mind as to, okay, listen, dude, what's the limit? When, like, like, he did this to me. How many times do I have to, for, have to forgive him? Like, you have to take out the garbage, right? I don't necessarily want to do it, but how many times do I have to do it? And this is what he really means. What's the lowest bar for forgiveness that's acceptable that I can squeak over and it still count? Because if you think about it, that's actually what he's asking, right? And he's human. Who, do, who can't relate to that, right? This is one of those things when you really read it, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. I felt that too. So what's the absolute minimum? How many, time, how many times do I have to do that to still count? He's not asking, what is my forgiving supposed to accomplish? Right? Because then, once I've reached that point, whatever the number is, then we've achieved the goal. See, that's what it's about. But that's not what he's asking. Like, what's the number? And when I get there, I can stop. He's not even asking what the goal is. And look at the number that Peter threw out there. The reason he said the number seven, it was a common teaching back then by the rabbis that the limit was actually three. If you forgave somebody three times, that's enough. Then you go like a Chuck Norris on them or whatever, right? <laughs> you don't have to do it anymore. If it doesn't work after three times, you can stop. So Peter thought he was being the teacher's pet, the golden student, doubling whatever it was, three, I'm going to go seven. He's going to be so impressed. That's what he's thinking, right? the A-plus a answer. But when Jesus said 77 times, he meant that you're to forgive in such a crazy amount that it's going to drive you crazy as a human. You're not going to understand it because that's what f true forgiveness is. And to be very specific, Jesus, and I'm going to go on the record, Jesus did not specifically mean 77. So you count 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, it's go time. Right? Well, I hit that 77, now, now I can do whatever I want. That's, it was a number to get you to the point to understand that we have to forgive to truly forgive, to repair the relationship. That's the goal. The actual number of time doesn't matter, but whatever we think, it's going to be usually bigger because we like to go lowball on that. Now, the other verse I want to share is on the same subject of forgiveness, but when I read it, look closely how the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching about forgiveness, right? Look at the reaction, because this is, this is going to show us how hard it actually is. Luke 17, 3 to 5. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back saying to you, I repent, you must forgive them. And what do the apostles say? Increase our faith. So what Jesus says is, listen, if someone really, they actually sin against you seven times in one single day, and each time they come back, one, two, three, four, five, each time they come back and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I repent, every time you're supposed to forgive them. Every time, and you must do this. How do the disciples respond? You have got to be kidding me. I need help. I can't do that. How, I, need, I, can't, I don't have faith enough to do that. We need help. That's what that statement means. It's like saying, well, I, okay, I already forgave him. Now I got to forgive him again? Okay, now I, I got to forgive him again? Now I got to forgive him again? I, I, I need to do it again? They're saying, y are you serious? Do you realize, Jesus, how hard that is? Help us. 
See, that's a really, really good statement because that shows that they get how difficult it is. And it is. And Jesus, yes. Jesus says, yes. Each time you need to forgive. And let's be honest, man. That is honest. That is tough. But that is true. Now, you've also heard, if you've heard me teach enough, you've probably heard me say at one point or another, when people read, when if you read the Bible and you go from verse to verse to verse, and you're like, oh, that's nice, and you just keep going, stop. You're not reading the Bible. If you read the Bible and you never go, holy smokes, how am I going to do that? Then you're not reading the Bible. Right? If you don't ever read that and go, that is, what? That is crazy. Right? If you're not totally blown away, if you don't ever go, I don't know if I can do that then you're not reading the Bible. What you're doing is you're reading it like a, a timeshare brochure. Oh, that's nice. I agree with that. I'm fine with that. This is not, that's not what this is. We are, I know it sounds funny, but it's true. When you think about it, that's how we do it. What we're being challenged to our core to be different when it is very, very difficult to do. And let's be honest, that is impossible to do on our own. And remember, when Jesus taught that, what got him into trouble was that's the kind of stuff that challenged everything. Everything the religious leaders taught. And when he got arrested, he got tortured and executed, what did the disciples do? Did they stand out there with signs saying, free Jesus, we're disciples? What did they do? They ran and hid behind locked doors. They were scared to have the same thing happen to them. They were terrified. They were trying to not die. And so in the bigger picture of what this means is following God, being disciples, we have to accept change. We have to be more than we are. We have to realize we're sinners. We have to repent. And then we need to be forgiven the exact way God forgives us. So I want to get back to our original story. When Moses is talking to Jethro and he tells him the full story, how the Israelites were freed, he tells him the hard stuff about going hungry thirsty in the desert, being truly scared. He tells them the whole story, not just the golden parachute version where the Israelites, you know, they got free bread from heaven and they were lounging by the oasis all day getting a tan. That's not what he said. He gave them the whole story. Listen, God led us into the desert. We ran out of food. We ran out of water. People actually started complaining and said they would rather go back and be slaves. This is what happened. But then he said, but then God was with us. He answered every prayer. He fed us. He gave us drink. We had no need in the world if we just trusted him. God did amazing things for them. And then when Jethro hears the full story, the hard stuff too, not just the golden parachute version, his own faith is strengthened. The hardships did not wreck his faith in God. It actually strengthened his faith. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said, praise the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. So Jethro begins to praise God because the good news, the full story. He understands the hardships that they went through and he rejoices that God saved them. He isn't celebrating the hardship. He's celebrating that God brought them through and will see them through anything. And because God was able to lead them through the good times and bad, the nation of Israel will become stronger. I also reckon Jethro probably guessed that God had a lot more in store for the Israelites. This wasn't just a random set of events. It was a part of a larger picture. 
Now, verse 11, we also just read something that's a little strange because it seemed to suggest Jethro might be acknowledging there's other gods. I don't know if you picked that up. They're just not as great as the, as the one true God. The text doesn't actually explain that any further, but likely what he's referring to is polytheism was so common back then. Everybody had gods for everything. Israel was actually the anomaly, and Israel was the, the unique nation that just had one God. That was very strange back then, but that's what they had. And so he's acknowledging this. He's saying, listen, by the acts that God did, everything he did, God is the one. I know it, and other people are going to know it, that he is the one true God. Then the story goes that they had a sacrifice. They offered burnt offerings. They made a very specific point that evening of worshiping and thanking God for all that he did. This wasn't like one of those quick thank yous you see the athletes do when they score a touchdown. Thank you. And then they run on. Which is fine. This was very specific, very purposeful offerings and sacrifices to say, Lord, we as a people, thank you. We recognize you. You are the one true God. You are our God. Next, the story takes an interesting turn because after the worship and sacrifices, the Israelites and Moses get back to their everyday normal life. While it may sound glamorous that Moses was their leader, he's like in charge, the big dog, the head honcho, what also went along with that was the everyday arguments, disagreements, stuff that happens with large groups of people. Right? And he was the leader, right? And we read this part of the story. I want you to remember that the Israelites were just as human as we're human, right? We go through the same stuff today. I mean, we're all Christians here, but we're still human. And as an example, I want to share something because we don't always behave as Christians. Uh, a long time ago, when I first came to this church, uh, we have an American flag. Yeah, it's still there, American flag right over here. Well, at one point, we did some construction. And I don't remember if we moved it over here or moved it in the back. We were doing something. And it caused an uproar for a small set of people. You can't touch that. Church is less somehow if it's not on that side. Or if it's just, and then you had a discussion about, well, then you're not a true patriot if you're okay with it. No, I am. You're not. And then it just... And so we're human. We're no different. I'm no different. I have my own stuff. But what I'm saying is when life happens, and that's what we're going to get into with Moses, things happen. Right? People are human. They have their own ideas, their own thoughts. And that's just how it goes, right? So let's look at this, uh, verse uh, 13. Then the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. Now, like, like freaking when I say when you read the verse, really read it. What is it telling us? It's saying Moses took his seat to serve as judge, right? And then those people stood around him from morning until night talking and bringing up their problems, their arguments, everything, for solid 12 hours, they stood around him. Oh, joy. <laughs> All right, let's be honest. They're not talking about strategic battle plans, the, the new temple they're going to build one day in Jerusalem, which is going to be awesome. This is John Q. Public arguing with John Doe about his goats eating too much grass, and now there's not enough for his, his goats. Susie Q. Public collected too many pomegranates. Now, they don't have enough pomegranates. I mean, it doesn't tell us what the stuff was. We don't know. I'm just guessing. But what happens when you get large groups of people together? Sometimes there's real problems. Sometimes there's just like, oh my goodness, we need to get along better. But Moses is now sitting there in the middle of all of it, day after day after day, and this is his new gig, it seems like, right? And when his father-in-law Jethro sees this, 
He totally disagrees with it. And he has some really great advice for him. Let's look at this, verse 14. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people around you stand morning till evening? What Jethro was doing was pointing out that Moses cannot do this alone. For all the greatness of Moses, and he was great. He, his impact is huge. We still feel that. He was a great man of faith. But even great prophets, disciples, believers, all of us here, we cannot do things alone. We're not meant to do alone. We're not meant to do church alone. We need help. We need to be protected from overwork, being burnt out. And even though, interestingly enough, when Jethro points this out, just for a moment, it doesn't look like Moses totally gets it. Because look what Moses says again. Moses answered him in verse 15 to 16. Because people come to me to see God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So again, for all the leadership abilities Moses has, his one weakness right then is thinking he can do it all by himself. And he can. And it doesn't look like he's doing it because of an ego. He's a genuinely a good dude trying to help out, but it's not going to work. He's going to get burnt out. And because Moses doesn't quite get it yet, Jethro's going to go into detail and actually give him the solution. And as we read this, you're going to see Jethro was actually a wise man. This is good stuff. It starts on verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me when I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. Oh, I love that. That's good. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees, teach them his decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they're to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials, some over thousands, some hundreds, some fifties, some tens, and they served as judges for the people at all times. But the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Now this is cool. Jethro was not only wise, but he was also biblical. And I think it's further evidence that Jethro was a believer and a, and a priest. And let me point out the four things that he said that specifically indicate that he was a believer. Uh, number one in verse 19, he starts off with, May God be with you. His true wish literally is that God remain with Moses and the people. Number two, in verse 20, he reminds Moses to teach them all of God's decrees, all of God's instructions. Yeah, you got all this stuff going on? Make sure you make the main thing the main thing. Number uh, three, in verse 21, he advises Moses to pick men that fear God, meaning that they understand God is God, his ways are to be followed, 
And he can bless or punish who he pleases. They also need to be humble. Number four, the last thing he says, verse 23. Then this is indicative of godly faith. He says, if you do this and God so commands, which means all of my advice may seem good and wise, but it only matters if it's within God's will. If it goes along with God has planned for you. God's will matters above all. Now there's also a couple important lessons in here for churches. Uh, Two lessons actually. Number one, no matter what we do, or what plans we have, where everything we try to achieve, even with the best of intentions, all of it depends on God's will. This is God's church, is it not? 100%. God started this church thousands of years ago. Jesus started the Christian church with him and the disciples, and we're, we're truly an extension of that. And it's going to go on beyond us, hopefully for a very long time. But all of what we do depends on prayer, following God's will, working as a family, And sometimes, let's be honest, God answers us right away when we pray. Sometimes, what? It takes a while. But either way, we stay coarse. We move in God's timing. Proverbs 16.9 says, In in their human hearts, uh, humans plan their course, but God establishes their steps. Now, the second lesson that's good for churches to learn is to share the responsibilities within the church. The church does not survive, it does not thrive because of the pastor. That is completely true. It survives and thrives because of the collective effort of every one of us. Every one of us. Staying focused and sharing God's message. Each one of you have gifts. You honestly do. Each one of you has the ability to reach different people. And this is true. I've seen this happen. There may be people that I try to reach, I honestly try to reach, and I don't get that far. But you, because of your personality, your personal experiences, the way God can use you, you can do far more in some cases than I ever could. And if we don't recognize that a church, if, ever, if everything's left for the pastor, the church is not going to get very far. But when we all pull together and we all do our part and use the gifts that God gave us, that's when we can real, really make some changes. But a church life can also be stressful at times. Just like Jethro suggested, we work together, we share the responsibilities, and the church stays healthy. The other benefit, I mean, honest, about doing this is that it does encourage each person to grow, to step out. It provides opportunities, stuff that you didn't know that you could do. You find out that you have abilities you never knew you had. And if only the pastor did everything, we'd waste a lot of opportunities for each one of you to grow. It's absolutely true. Another way to think of this is the very reason that Jesus sent out the disciples. Number one, when he sent the disciples, he said, go make more disciples, right? But the other purpose there was as, as the church continued to grow, you would need disciples to maintain the existing churches that they had. Someone needs to stay and help maintain and grow those while the other disciples go out and make more. So, it's, it's a, it, so Jesus really built it into the system that we would help one another and continue to grow the church. Now, the last thing I want to share as I begin to close is something beautiful that Jesus said. And Jesus, just, he just has this way of just knocking things out of the park. And it's one of these verses. It's Matthew 11, uh, 28 to 29. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This applied to the Israelites, this applies now, that no matter what God has in store for us as individuals, as a church, he's there for us. We can depend on him, we'll have rest for our souls, and we can be the kind of church 
that reaches people that don't know him. All right? Well, let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that all your people, the Israelites, experienced because of your words, their actions, we can learn to be better disciples ourselves. May we always remember that trials will come and you will use those trials, those times to increase our faith and our reliance on you. Help us to recognize how much we need to change and grow so that we, we can become good examples of your love and of your forgiveness. Please continue to bless this church. Lead us to be a bright spot in the community so that many more people may come to know you and your son. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, welcome everybody tonight and those listening on our podcast. I want to give you a quick recap. Last week, we saw how the people of Israel were moving forward, going towards Mount Sinai, and all along the way, they're being led by the pillar of a cloud and fire at night, which was God's presence. And in the bigger picture, what God was doing was directing their steps and growing in their faith. Right? So tonight, we're going to continue our story of uh, Moses and the Israelites. It's going to be in Exodus 18. If you have your Bibles, you open them up. You got your iPad, iPhone, that's okay. Um, now, the part that we're going to talk about mainly from Exodus 18 is going to be specifically Moses' family and his father-in-law, who are his family, his father-in-law, and they're going to rejoin him after the plagues, after the Red Sea incident. And then we also, we're going to get to see how Moses handles everyday trials of being the leader within Israel. All right, so let's look at verse 1 and let's see what it tells us. It says, now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Moses' father-in-law was a man, as it tells us, his name was Jethro, and he's listed as a, pre uh, excuse me, a priest of Midian. The name Midian is actually significant because it's one of the children of Abraham. We know that Abraham did take another wife later in life, and her name was Keturah. You can find that in Genesis 25 if you want to look that up. And they had children. One of those children was named Midian. So because of Jethro's connection with Abraham, it's quite likely we believe he was probably a believer in God and may have been an actual priest of God, which is really, really cool. Now, you've got to remember, when we read the Bible and we hear about stories, we hear about the main characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and sometimes we can assume that they're the only ones that believed in God at that time, right? We tend to think that because those are the only people listed, but the truth is there were other people around Moses, Abraham, all those other characters that would have heard about God, the great things that he did, and they came to believe, and they raised their children to know God too. So likely there were whole other groups outside of the Israelites to a degree that would have known and believed in God. They just didn't get written about so again, Jethro appeared to have been a believer and was a priest. And it tells us from a distance, he heard about all the miracles God did for Moses and the Israelites. And more than likely, not just him, but the other communities in the area, they would have also believed in God, and there were some that didn't. They would have heard about all these miracles. They would have heard about all the good news, and uh, even about the plagues. They, let's be honest, they would have made for great stories, would they not? Think about all the stuff that's happening in the news now, you know, your phone, your TV, but that would have been great news, all right? And for people that believed in God, it would have been great, a great source of hope and confidence, would help their faith. For communities that did not believe in God, it would have been a source of fear and respect and like, ooh, we need to steer clear, right? 
So again, think about how stories get passed around today around the world with internet and cell phones. Um, even stories that are not that big, but back then, think about the chatter, the gossip, the plagues would have brought about. How far and wide that would have went. How many times would it have been told and retold over campfires and just going out and out and out? What about the whole Egyptian army being drowned in the Red Sea? You don't think that got passed around, right? Or how about the news about the angel of death? That would have gone far and wide too. So it makes sense, all the sense in the world that Jethro and Moses' family that were in a distance away would have heard about all these events too, right? But the most important, the message that got out, this is what matters. And then Jethro certainly got the message is that these events happened because God intervened for Israel. That's what also got out. The message of God's power, his favor for Israel became well known and it was very good news to the people who believed. So let's continue with our story. Uh, verses 2 to 4. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he, saved, for, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, at some point, Moses did send his family to live with his father-in-law. Probably, it doesn't tell us, but we think probably during the plagues where it would have made sense because it was so, you know, so much going on. And now that Moses and the Israelites were free from slavery, they're in the desert, they're on the move, God's leading them. It was safe for his family to rejoin them. But I also want to pause for a moment. Let's examine the name that Moses gave his sons because they're interesting. His oldest son was named Gershom, which meant stranger or stranger in a strange land. And that is a really odd name to name a boy. Let's be honest, right? It, it meant something, but that's what Moses called him. Now, the name is actually a reflection of how Moses felt. That's how he felt, right? Before God called him to free the Israelites. Before Moses was called, he had no purpose. He had no people. He was a loner. He was on his own in the wilderness, right? And in a way, think about it, we can relate with that as well. How did we feel before we were saved? Right? And, but if you can imagine how, how big that weighed on him that he actually named one of his own children after that. Right? And that's pretty huge. Now this, and, um, but after God came and he called Moses, after Moses freed, uh, freed the people, he had purpose. Right? And he knew God would be with him and would lead him. He named his second son Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of the Pharaoh. Man, Moses' life was changed. He had purpose. So he named his next child after that feeling, right? Think about that. God is my helper. He saved me from the sword of the Pharaoh. That's a lot stronger name than Ryan, right? That's pretty huge. That's pretty cool. But remember, Moses did this to honor God and to be a constant reminder all of his life what he went through and how God was there. He, he never wanted to forget that. He never wanted to uh, let that be anything but incredibly special. Anybody ever name their kids after something like that? No, right? That's really unique, and that's really cool what he did. Now, the story goes, as Jethro and Moses' wife and his children, as they approach the camp, so they've been off for a while, now they come back to the camp, Moses actually goes out to meet them. And as I read what unfolds, look at how Moses treats his father-in-law. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, this is verse 7 and 8, and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians 
for Israel's sake and all about the hardships that they met along the way and how the Lord saved them. Now, this is cool. Moses, even though he was the leader of an entire nation, even though he took on the Pharaoh of Egypt and won, even though he was used by God in a powerful way and his name was going to be told again and again for thousands of years, what does he do to his father-in-law? He bows down and he kisses him, right? His, he, he was showing respect to his father-in-law who did a good deed for him by caring for his family. So Moses shows his thankfulness, his admiration, and he bows low before him. Even though, let's be honest, he's a bold, he's a powerful leader, he's still very humble. He didn't let his success go to his head. He does not become proud. And let's be honest, that wouldn't necessarily be easy to do, right? But that's what he did. Now, the other reason Moses probably bowed before Jethro is because he was also listed as a priest. Moses gave him the respect his position deserved. Because even though Moses had led a successful campaign or everything was going well, the office of priest during that time period was still to be respected. And that's an important message. Next, the verse tells us that Moses was honest about their experience. Notice he told Jethro about the hard times, because let's be honest, they had them, right? The Israelites did. He also told them how God saved them. And right there, this is one of the biggest points I want everyone to take home tonight. Following God diligently and faithfully does not mean we will never experience hardship. It just doesn't. Hardship is part of life. Many times God's going to use the hard times to build us up and to make our faith stronger. It, he does. Here's an example of this that we forget a lot. With the gospel. When we share the gospel, the best part is sharing the good news about salvation. Amen? 100%. That's the easy part. That's where God does the work and we are saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. But what's our part? What do we need to do? We need to admit we're a sinner. We need to repent. We need to turn from our ways, right? The other part that goes along with that is we're also required to forgive the way God forgives us. And that's not always easy to do. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, uh, 14 to 15. It'll be up here behind me. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, what's it say? Your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that's one of those verses when people read it, they go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, this is one we've got to stop for a second on. It's very easy to read that and pass by when you're not being challenged to the core, when you haven't been truly, truly wronged as an adult, right? That's when it's truly hard. When someone really and honestly truly hurts you, I mean, they steal from you, whatever, all kinds of stuff, that's tough. And I've got to be honest. I want you to everyone look at me for a second. The hardest thing I've had to do as a pastor the most difficult thing, the thing I've had the least amount of success with a lot of times is convincing one a grown adult who has truly been wronged by another person or they think they have to forgive this other person. That takes the longest if it ever happens. That is difficult. That's a tall order. And I have met people that have actually said, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. That will not happen. And then that same person said, well, what does the Bible say about that? Do I have to? What do you think I said? Absolutely. So are you telling me if I don't forgive them, I'm not going to heaven? What the Bible says, what Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. 
And what it also says is forgiven people go to heaven. You know, we have to repent, we have to. And that's a tough conversation, but it's real. And the truth is, we can't sugarcoat stuff like that. We can't sand down the edges and make it palatable for everybody. It doesn't work that way. Because if you do that, when it really happens, the chance of success goes down so far. Right? And Jesus talked about this issue on more than one occasion because it was difficult. It's hard. He had to teach the disciples over time. Right? Let's show another example. Matthew 18, 21 to 22. I love this one. Then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now let's look at what Peter's asking. How many times do I need to forgive the person who sinned against me? And he's asking this from a question, from a, I'm sorry, from a position of a human mind as to, okay, listen, dude, what's the limit? When, like, like, he did this to me, how many times do I have to, for, have to forgive him? Like, you have to take out the garbage, right? I don't necessarily want to do it, but how many times do I have to do it? And this is what he really means. What's the lowest bar for forgiveness that's acceptable that I can squeak over and it still count? Because if you think about it, that's actually what he's asking, right? And he's human. Who, who can't relate to that, Right? This is one of those things when you really read it, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. I felt that too. So what's the absolute minimum? How many times, how many times do I have to do that to still count? He's not asking, what is my forgiving supposed to accomplish? Right? Because then, once I've reached that point, whatever the number is, then we've achieved the goal. See, that's what it's about. But that's not what he's asking. Like, What's the number, and when I get there, I can stop? He's not even asking what the goal is. And look at the number that Peter threw out there. The reason he said the number seven, it was a common teaching back then by the rabbis that the limit was actually three. If you forgave somebody three times, that's enough. Then you go like a Chuck Norris on them or whatever, right? <laughs> you don't have to do it anymore. If it doesn't work after three times, you can stop. So Peter thought he was being the teacher's pet, the golden student, doubling whatever it was, three, I'm going to go seven. He's going to be so impressed. <laughs> That's what he's thinking, right? the A, A plus answer. But when Jesus said 77 times, he meant that you're to forgive in such a crazy amount that it's going to drive you crazy as a human. You're not going to understand it because that's what f true forgiveness is. And to be very specific, Jesus, and I'm going to go on the record, Jesus did not specifically mean 77. So you count 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, it's go time. Right? Well, I hit that 77, now, now I can do whatever I want. That's, it was a number to get you to the point to understand that we have to forgive to truly forgive, to repair the relationship. That's the goal. The actual number of time doesn't matter, but whatever we think, it's going to be usually bigger because we like to go lowball on that. Now, the other verse I want to share is on the same subject of forgiveness, but when I read it, look closely how the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching about forgiveness, right? Look at the reaction, because this is, this is going to show us how hard it actually is. Luke 17, 3 to 5. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying to you, I repent, you must forgive them. And what do the apostles say? 
Increase our faith. So what Jesus says is, listen, if someone really, they actually sin against you seven times in one single day, and each time they come back, one, two, three, four, five, each time they come back and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I repent, every time you're supposed to forgive them. Every time, and you must do this. How the disciples respond, you have got to be kidding me. I need help. I can't do that. How, I, need, I, can't, I don't have faith enough to do that. We need help. That's what that statement means. It's like saying, well, I, okay, I already forgave him. Now I got to forgive him again? Okay, now I, I got to forgive him again? Now I got to forgive him again? I, I, I need to do it again? They're saying, are you serious? Do you realize, Jesus, how hard that is? Help us. See, that's a really, really good statement because that shows that they get how difficult it is. And it is. And Jesus, yes. Jesus says, yes. Each time you need to forgive. And let's be honest, man. That is honest. That is tough. But that is true. Now, you've also heard, if you've heard me teach enough, you've probably heard me say at one point or another, when people read, when if you read the Bible and you go from verse to verse to verse, and you're like, oh, that's nice. And you just keep going. Stop. You're not reading the Bible. If you read the Bible and you never go, holy smokes, how am I going to do that? Then you're not reading the Bible. Right? If you don't ever read that and go, that is, what? That is crazy. Right? If you're not totally blown away, if you don't ever go, I don't know if I can do that, then you're not reading the Bible. What you're doing is you're reading it like a, a timeshare brochure. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I agree with that. I'm fine with that. This is not, that's not what this is. We are, I know it sounds funny, but it's true. When you think about it, that's how we do it. What we're being challenged to our core to be different when it is very, very difficult to do. And let's be honest, that is impossible to do on our own. And remember, when Jesus taught that, what got him into trouble was that's the kind of stuff that challenged everything. Everything the religious leaders taught. And when he got arrested, he got tortured and executed, what did the disciples do? Did they stand out there with signs saying, free Jesus, we're disciples? What did they do? They ran and hid behind locked doors. They were scared to have the same thing happen to them. They were terrified. They were trying to not die. And so in the bigger picture of what this means is following God, being a disciple, is we have to accept change. We have to be more than we are. We have to realize we're sinners. We have to repent. And then we need to be forgiven the exact way God forgives us. So I want to get back to our original story. When Moses is talking to Jethro and he tells him the full story, how the Israelites were freed, he tells him the hard stuff about going hungry thirsty in the desert, being truly scared. He tells them the whole story, not just the golden parachute version where the Israelites, you know, they got free bread from heaven and they were lounging by the oasis all day getting a tan. That's not what he said. He gave them the whole story. Listen, God led us into the desert. We ran out of food. We ran out of water. People actually started complaining and said they would rather go back and be slaves. This is what happened. But then he said, but then God was with us. He answered every prayer. He fed us. He gave us drink. We had no need in the world if we just trusted him. God did amazing things for them. And then when Jethro hears the full story, the hard stuff too, not just the golden parachute version, his own faith is strengthened. The hardships did not wreck his faith in God. It actually strengthened his faith. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
He said, praise the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. So Jethro begins to praise God because the good news, the full story. He understands the hardships that they went through and he rejoices that God saved them. He isn't celebrating the hardship, he's celebrating that God brought them through and will see them through anything. And because God was able to lead them through the good times and bad, the nation of Israel will become stronger. I also reckon Jethro probably guessed that God had a lot more in store for the Israelites. This wasn't just a random set of events, it was a part of a larger picture. Now verse 11, we also just read something that's a little strange because it seemed to suggest Jethro might be acknowledging there's other gods. I don't know if you picked that up. They're just not as great as the, as the one true God. The text doesn't actually explain that any further, but likely what he's referring to is polytheism was so common back then. Everybody had gods for everything. Israel was actually the anomaly. And Israel was the, the unique nation that just had one God. That was very strange back then, but that's what they had. And so he's acknowledging this. He's saying, listen, by the acts that God did, everything he did, God is the one. I know it and other people are going to know it, that he is the one true God. Then the story goes that they had a sacrifice, they offered burnt offerings, they made a very specific point that evening of worshiping and thanking God for all that he did. This wasn't like one of those quick thank yous you see the athletes do when they score a touchdown. Thank you. And then they run on, which is fine. This was very specific, very purposeful offerings and sacrifices to say, Lord, we as a people, thank you. We recognize you. You are the one true God. You are our God. Next, the story takes an interesting turn because after the worship and sacrifices, the Israelites and Moses get back to their everyday normal life. While it may sound glamorous that Moses was their leader, he's like in charge, the big dog, the head honcho, what also went along with that was the everyday arguments, disagreements, stuff that happens with large groups of people. Right? And he was the leader, right? And we read this part of the story, I want you to remember that the Israelites were just as human as we're human, right? We go through the same stuff today. I mean, we're all Christians here, but we're still human. And as an example, I want to share something, because we don't always behave as Christians. Uh, a long time ago, when I first came to this church, uh, we have an American flag. Yeah, it's still there, American flag right over here. Well, at one point, we did some construction. And I don't remember if we moved it over here or moved it in the back. We were doing something. And it caused an uproar for a small set of people. You can't touch that. Church is less somehow if it's not on that side. Or it just, and then you had a discussion about, well, then you're not a true patriot if you're okay with it. No, I am. You're not. And then it just... And so we're human. We're no different. I'm no different. I have my own stuff. But what I'm saying is when life happens, and that's what we're going to get into with Moses, things happen. Right? People are human. They have their own ideas, their own thoughts. And that's just how it goes, right? So let's look at this, uh, verse uh, 13. Then the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. Now, like, like freaking when I say when you read the verse, really read it, what is it telling us? It's saying Moses took his seat to serve as judge, right? And then those people stood around him from morning until night talking and bringing up their problems, their arguments, everything, 
for solid 12 hours, they stood around him. Oh, joy. All right, let's be honest. They're not talking about strategic battle plans, the, the new temple they're going to build one day in Jerusalem, which is going to be awesome. This is John Q. Public arguing with John Doe about his goats eating too much grass, and now there's not enough for his, his goats. Susie Q. Public collected too many pomegranates. Now they don't have enough pomegranates. I mean, it doesn't tell us what the stuff was. We don't know. I'm just guessing. But what happens when you get large groups of people together? Sometimes there's real problems. Sometimes there's just like, oh my goodness, we need to get along better. But Moses is now sitting there in the middle of all of it, day after day after day, and this is his new gig, it seems like, right? And when his father-in-law Jethro sees this, he totally disagrees with it. And he has some really great advice for him. Let's look at this, verse 14. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people around you stand morning till evening? What Jethro was doing was pointing out that Moses cannot do this alone. For all the greatness of Moses, and he was great. He, his impact is huge. We still feel that. He was a great man of faith. But even great prophets, disciples, believers, all of us here, we cannot do things alone. We're not meant to do alone. We're not meant to do church alone. We need help. We need to be protected from overwork, being burnt out. And even though, interestingly enough, when Jethro points this out, just for a moment, it doesn't look like Moses totally gets it. Because look what Moses says again. Moses answered him in verse 15 to 16. Because people come to me to see God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So again, for all the leadership abilities Moses has, his one weakness right then is thinking he can do it all by himself. And he can. And it doesn't look like he's doing it because of an ego. He's a genuinely a good dude trying to help out, but it's not going to work. He's going to get burnt out. And because Moses doesn't quite get it yet, Jethro's going to go into detail and actually give him the solution. And as we read this, you're going to see Jethro was actually a wise man. This is good stuff. It starts on verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me when I will give you some advice and may God be with you. Oh, I love that. That's good. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees, teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they're to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials, some over thousands, some hundreds, some fifties, some tens, and they served as judges for the people at all times. But the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. 
Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Now this is cool. Jethro was not only wise, but he was also biblical. And I think it's further evidence that Jethro was a believer and a, and a priest. And let me point out the four things that he said that specifically indicate that he was a believer. Uh, number one, in verse 19, he starts off with, May God be with you. His true wish literally is that God remain with Moses and the people. Number two, in verse 20, he reminds Moses to teach them all of God's decrees, all of God's instructions. Yeah, you got all this stuff going on? Make sure you make the main thing the main thing. Number uh, three, in verse 21, he advises Moses to pick men that fear God, meaning that they understand God is God, his ways are to be followed, and he can bless or punish who he pleases. They also need to be humble. Number four, the last thing he says, verse 23. Then this is indicative of godly faith. He says, if you do this and God so commands, which means all of my advice may seem good and wise, but it only matters if it's within God's will. If it goes along with God has planned for you. God's will matters above all. Now there's also a couple important lessons in here for churches. uh, Two lessons actually. Number one, no matter what we do, or what plans we have, where everything we try to achieve, even with the best of intentions, all of it depends on God's will. This is God's church, is it not? 100%. God started this church thousands of years ago. Jesus started the Christian church with him and the disciples, and we're, we're truly an extension of that. And it's going to go on beyond us, hopefully for a very long time. But all of what we do depends on prayer, following God's will, working as a family, And sometimes, let's be honest, God answers us right away when we pray. Sometimes, what, it takes a while. But either way, we stay coarse. We move in God's timing. Proverbs 16.9 says, In in their human hearts, uh, humans plan their course, but God establishes their steps. Now, the second lesson that's good for churches to learn is to share the responsibilities within the church. The church does not survive, it does not thrive because of the pastor. That is completely true. It survives and thrives because of the collective effort of every one of us. Every one of us. Staying focused and sharing God's message. Each one of you have gifts. You honestly do. Each one of you has the ability to reach different people. And this is true. I've seen this happen. There may be people that I try to reach, I honestly try to reach, and I don't get that far. But you, because of your personality, your personal experiences, the way God can use you, you can do far more in some cases than I ever could. And if we don't recognize that a church, if, ever, if everything's left for the pastor, the church is not going to get very far. But when we all pull together and we all do our part and use the gifts that God gave us, that's when we can real, really make some changes. But... A church life can also be stressful at times. Just like Jethro suggested, we work together, we share the responsibilities, and the church stays healthy. The other benefit, let me be honest, about doing this is that it does encourage each person to grow, to step out. It provides opportunities, stuff that you didn't know that you could do. You find out that you have abilities you never knew you had. And if only the pastor did everything, we'd waste a lot of opportunities for each one of you to grow. It's absolutely true. Another way to think of this is the very reason that Jesus sent out the disciples. Number one, when he sent the disciples, he said, go make more disciples, right? But the other purpose there was as, as the church continued to grow, you would need disciples to maintain the existing churches that they had. 
Someone needs to stay and help maintain and grow those while the other disciples go out and make more. So, it's, it's a, it, so Jesus really built it into the system that we would help one another and continue to grow the church. Now the last thing I want to share as I begin to close is something beautiful that Jesus said. And Jesus, is, he just has this way of just knocking things out of the park. And it's one of these verses. It's Matthew 11, uh, 28 to 29. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This applied to the Israelites. This applies now that no matter what God has in store for us as individuals, as a church, he's there for us. We can depend on him. We'll have rest for our souls, and we can be the kind of church that reaches people that don't know him. All right? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that all your people, the Israelites, experienced because of your words, their actions, we can learn to be better disciples ourselves. May we always remember that trials will come and you will use those trials, those times, to increase our faith and our reliance on you. Help us to recognize how much we need to change and grow so that we, we can become good examples of your love and of your forgiveness. Please continue to bless this church. Lead us to be a bright spot in the community so that many more people may come to know you and your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.